Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Max Anderson. And in today's episode, we are journeying to the Mountains of Madness as we look at H.P. Lovecraft's story at the Mountains of Madness. Now, since we last spoke, we have been on many journeys, particularly one to home of H.P. Lovecraft, Providence, Rhode Island, for the Necronomicon convention how to feel like a sardine going on norwegian air yeah can i recommend people do not fly with norwegian air on a cheap flight to america from britain not a good idea the three of us were as matt says kind of squeezed yeah so how was your time at necronomicon scott uh yeah yeah i had a really good time i saw a whole bunch of seminars uh basically spent most of the time socializing going around talking to people uh, and it was really good to, to meet so many of our listeners, and uh, yes, a great bunch. And this time we managed to stay on to catch the Dunwich Horror Picture Show on the Sunday evening. Yeah, that uh, was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> and we have just started work on issue five of the Blasphemous Tome. This is the fanzine, the print-only fanzine that we put out to all our backers. Uh, we'll be putting this one out at the end of the year. Uh, we'll have more details about the contents in subsequent episodes, uh, but it'll be filled with the normal cavalcade of, of weird stuff. The Blasphemous Tome, of course, is for backers of the good friends of Jackson Lias. Everyone who is backing us via Patreon, when it goes out, will get a copy. And now on to our main topic, at the Mountains of Madness. So this is the first instalment of what we, we assume will be quite a long run of episodes about what is really quite a long story, H.P. Lovecraft's novella of The Mountains of Madness. I mean, this is one of the longest things he wrote. As ever, we'll pick this apart in search of our inspiration for our games of Call of Cthulhu. Now, this is one of Lovecraft's later stories. He wrote this in 1931, between February and March, in the midst of a burst of creativity that capped his writing career, considering the length of the story, it's a remarkably quick bit of writing. He says, I found additional incidents crowding in on me like pseudo-memories, so that the text spun itself out to 80 pages of my crabbed and interlined script before I could conscientiously call it a story. And that was between HPL to August Ehrlich on the 24th of March 1931. Yes, sadly, to Lovecraft's great distress, Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales, where he published the vast majority of his work, rejected this story. It is very possible that I am growing stale. That is for readers of The Whisperer and Mountains of Madness to judge. If it is so, it merely signifies the end of my fictional attempts. There is no field other than the weird in which I have any aptitude or inclination for fictional composition. Life has never interested me so much as the escape from life. And that was a letter from Lovecraft to J. Vernon Shea on the 7th of August, 1931. You know, I really empathise with him there. The only bit I'm interested about in life is the escape from it. It that, is? That pretty much sums up my life entirely. <laughs> By escape from life, do you mean sleep? That too, yeah. But yeah, they, they seem to hit a, quite a heavy blow to Lovecraft... 
you know, as I said, the vast majority of his stuff had been published through Weird Tales. But he basically sat on this story for the next five years, or best part of five years after that. Eventually, he sold it to Astounding Stories, which was much more of a science fiction magazine. And they published it spread over three issues, the February, March and April issues of 1936. F. All in Tremaine, who Lovecraft has a great little pet name for later on, the editor of Astounding Tales, or Astounding Stories, made significant alterations. In particular, he split up paragraphs, Americanized Lovecraft's spelling, and cut out some 1,000 words, mainly from the latter part of the story. Lovecraft was so furious about these changes, he referred to Tremaine as that goddamn dung of a hyena. That is, that is such a great name. <laughs> Yeah, Lovecraft, of course, famously used British spellings uh, in you know, pretty well everything he wrote. And, and not only British spellings, but archaic British spellings, you know, things you wouldn't even see in the UK. And yeah, I can see how a lot of editors in the US might not have wanted to go through with that. He did seem to get a lot of uh, leeway from Farnsworth Wright, who published these things largely unaltered. And so it must have been a bit of a shock to him to face an editor who actually adhered to a house style. Yeah, it's still happening more recently as well. The uh, the upcoming film of Colour Out of Space has suddenly disappeared a you from it. Really? Yeah. Oh, dear. The first book publication from Arkham House restored some of the text, but introduced over a thousand new errors. Versions in print since the mid-80s are fully restored to Lovecraft's original intent. Yeah, I think it was Joshi who largely restored it in, in recent years. And that previous error-filled version, yeah, I've seen estimates of up to 1,500 errors that were introduced there by August Ehrlich. Lovecraft had been interested in Antarctic exploration since, a chi- since his childhood. So At the Mountains of Madness represented the culmination of a lifelong fascination. This is evident from the sheer amount of factual detail that he incorporated. And it it did certainly make me think an awful lot about the way we present information in role-playing games. The whole risk of presenting too much information to the players and alienating them in the process. You know, if you were in a game and you had the GM sitting there telling you all of this geological information or all of the the details about these alien organisms, the exhaustive details about their biology as this sort of monologue, you would just tune out completely. Even if it were handouts, I mean, you're better with handouts than I am. I'd get halfway through them and think, fuck this shit, and, and you know, just find something better to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you want the any one person in the game talking too long anyway. So whether it's scientific data or just some other exposition or whatever, I think that's kind of a no-no. I am interested to note, though, that he talks about his interest in antarctic exploration since childhood and this is a period when you know amazon and scott and people like that are are journeying to the south pole this was kind of a new frontier that was being opened up and explored for the first time kind of wonder what that was like to be alive in that period Mm. and to have that it must be hitting newspapers and and so on nowadays you know it would be on tv all the time but obviously they didn't have that then i guess he grew up with that stuff well, he would have been an adult when the Amundsen and Scott expeditions took place. Those were in 1911, so he would have been 21. Now, I always had the impression that this was Lovecraft's longest work, but at 41,500 words, it's actually his third longest tale, um, around the same length as Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and around 10,000 words shorter than The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. 
It also represents a major shift in the way that he told his stories. And we see some of this with his later works as well, particularly The Shadow Out of Time. But this move into more explicitly science fictional themes. Before, his stories had been largely couched in, in horror story terms, with you know, bits of you know, these sort of science fictional explanations for stuff. We perhaps saw the first elements of the shift in The Whispering Darkness, which came shortly before this. But this is where he just goes all out science fiction and just spells everything out in almost purely rational terms, with obviously a few notable exceptions, which we'll discuss during the story. In a letter to J. Vernon Shea in August 31, Lovecraft writes, There is a region on the border betwixt weirdness and scientifiction in which I might conceivably experiment. Indeed, the mountains of madness belongs largely to this type. Now, he coins a term there, I think at least he coins a term, scientifiction. So he's blending the word scientific and fiction to make a new word. Did they have science fiction then? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Term? I'm sure some of the uh, pulp magazines around at the time used the phrase science fiction. Right. Uh, but I've also heard science fiction, uh, you know, Lovecraft's term there from other sources as well. So it could be that they were two competing phrases for the same thing at the time. And of course, Lovecraft chose the more awkward one. Because it does seem a little like science fiction here. We're going to a kind of almost alien landscape, some, somewhere none of us have ever been this harsh alien climate that is so different to anything we experience. And indeed, it's a long journey for them to get there. And you have to have special apparatus and equipment to even survive. And as we find out, there are kind of aliens there. But it's more than just that. It's the fact that he tries to come up with scientific uh, foundations for everything that's going on, explains you know the presence of the monsters and their evolution or creation and so on in purely scientific terms and their, their entire history in purely scientific terms. This is a story that is completely divorced from anything magical or, or, or even particularly... You know, weird in the weird fiction sense, mm. and, and you know, roots itself entirely in scientific analysis and exploration. Now we move on to a synopsis of At the Mountains of Madness. And chapter one opens with I am forced into speech. Because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing this contemplated invasion of the Antarctic, with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice cap. And I am the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubt of the real facts, as I must reveal them, is inevitable. Yet... If I suppressed what will seem extravagant and incredible, there would be nothing left. So we open with our narrator, who we later discover is named Professor Dyer. Expressing frustration, he has been unable to discourage other scientists from following in the footsteps of the ill-fated Miskatonic University expedition to the Antarctic, which he had led. Yeah, the so-called Starkweather Moor expedition, as it's referred to in a couple of places throughout the text. But this guy, Dyer, we've heard of him before, right? Or we hear of him somewhere else? Yeah, The Shadow of Time, which was published after this, uh, does include him as a supporting character. And we learn his first name is William there. 
And he, you know, once again, is working as a geologist, you know, still a professor at the Miskatonic University, but this time heading off to a different dead alien city, this time in Australia. It seems to be, you know, sort of his thing. I can't remember what happens to Dyer in the shadow out of time what's what's Very his little. fate he, 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 i don't think i don't think he really has one I, I, it's, it's been a while since i read it but i skimmed it a little bit before uh the today and yeah he, he basically just sort of seems to turn up for a few paragraphs and sort of sit around and just be there so he's basically lived through two campaigns as a, as a player character well, I, I think he was much more of an NPC in the second one. He didn't really take an active role. He's just that guy that doesn't say much, I think. He's played by, you know... Keeps at the back of the party with his eyes closed, yeah. avoids the sand loss. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he hasn't got much sand left after At the Mountains of Madness, as we'll find out. So he, he wants to take it steady on the next campaign. Oh, he can fly a plane out, so he's definitely got some left at the end of it. But yeah. Well, how sane do you have to be to fly a plane? <laughs> well, well, we'll come to that, well, I think much later. <laughs> yes. Dyer hopes that the data he presents will be convincing, but worries that it needs to be seen in the light of certain primordial and highly baffling myth cycles. Rarely a good basis for an argument. Yeah, if you end up having to make your scientific arguments in terms of myth cycles, you've probably lost before you started. <laughs> this argument will only work if you've read the Necronomicon. Hands up if you've done... Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, it's, it's Miskatonic <laughs> University every, every fucker there. As we reddish. find out in this story, most people seem to have read it. Yeah, it's just a revolving door on that uh, kind of restricted section in the yeah. Mississippi University Library. It's not very restricted, yeah. is it? I, th- I think the word "restricted" is in inverted commas. <laughs> well, they just tie the books up so they can't leave. But... Mm. One fact that may count against Dyer is that none of the men on the expedition were experts in the unexpected fields their explorations uncovered. Dyer himself is a geologist uh, who had hoped to gather specimens with the aid of a new drill devised by Professor Peabody. Well, that's but, just poor planning, really, isn't it? I mean, oh, you're not mythos experts? Oh, well, just... well, except he says they're not mythos experts. But, yeah, as, as we just mentioned, at least two, and I think maybe three people on the expedition have read the Necronomicon. So I, I don't know who he expects to be a bigger expert than him. The trek inland would be made easier by the... Four large Dornier aeroplanes designed especially for the tremendous altitude flying necessary on the Antarctic plateau and with the added fuel warming and quick starting devices worked out by Peabody. Yeah, Peabody seems to be, you know, quite the mechanical engineer, doesn't he? He's bordering on a pulp mad scientist at this stage, I think. I just love the fact he's got an aeroplane with an umlaut in there. Yes, yeah, well, it's not an umlaut because it's English, it's a diuresis. It looks like the, two dots, the, oh, heavy metal it's, for it's me. The, it's the same symbol, but it serves a different purpose. Uh, an umlaut changes the pronunciation of a vowel uh, so that, you know, for example, you know, if you had it over an O in German, if you didn't have access to that character, you'd write it as O-E and it's pronounced as a more I sound. So how do we say aeroplanes with an diary over the E? Yeah, that, that, in this case, it's designed to uh, explain that it's not a ligature. So that, you know, is aero as opposed to ero, which if it were an A ligature, then the E would be pronounced as an E. But I don't think I've ever seen anyone other than Lovecraft use a diuresis on the word aeroplane. But it looks cool. It does. <laughs> also, Peabody must be near insanity for every time somebody says his name, he has to correct them. Because it's spelled <laughs> Pabody or Parbody, P-A-B-O-D-I-E. Yeah. No, it's Peabody. 
Yes, uh, Lovecraft apparently knew someone of the same name, uh, so I imagine he'd heard all those complaints himself at some stage. The scope of the expedition was to explore the mountain ranges and plateaus south of the Ross Sea, regions explored in varying degree by Shackleton, Admanson, Scott and Bird. So, yeah, as we mentioned, I mean, these expeditions, or the latter expeditions mentioned there, took place in 1911. Particularly the Norwegian e- expedition, led by Roald Amundsen, reached the South Pole on the 14th of December 1911, beating the ill-fated British expedition led by Robert Falcon Scott by some five weeks. I mean, this story takes place in 1930, so it's 19 years further on. One of the goals of the expedition was to gather fossil samples to confirm the theory that the Antarctic once had a tropical climate and was home to teeming life. As well as using his drill, Peabody worked out a method to use electrical current to melt the permafrost and expose areas of rock for boring. So, yeah, I mean, between this custom drill, the use of electricity to melt permafrost, you know, making adaptations to the aeroplanes so that they work in, in frozen climates, it's very easy, because this is so long ago, to sort of think of all this technology as being archaic. But there's so many bits of technology like that, and, and also, you know, we'll encounter the shortwave radios later on that are communicating between continents. But in a lot of cases, not only cutting-edge science, but are imaginative science in Lovecraft's time. You know, the, these things are sort of adding to the overall science fiction aspect of this story. At this point, we hear the first mention of the proposed Starkweather-Moore expedition from the Miskatonic, following on from Dyer's expedition. Now, people who play a certain campaign might have heard of that. Yeah, I mean, we should probably just mention that in passing, because it's not a huge spoiler that it's part of the campaign, considering you're told it as part of your character creation. The Chaosium Call of Cthulhu campaign, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, actually follows on directly from this story, as you might guess from the title of the campaign, and follows the Starkweather-Moore expedition on their probably ill-fated journey to Antarctica as well, repeating the mistakes of the past. Spoilers! This is like a prelude to that campaign. I think more so than any other Lovecraft story, this fits perfectly as a setup for a game. And so much so that it's actually used as a handout in the campaign. Yeah, the biggest handout of all time in a game. Yeah. <laughs> Slap a 40,000-word handout right on the table, right? Yeah, Keeper said, I'll, I'll just sit here quietly while you read through that. <laughs> One at a time. Now, I listened to the HP Podcraft episodes about this very story. I mean, they did a fantastic job of it, far oh, better God, than yes. I think I'll ever be able to do. Uh, but one of the things they did, every time they mentioned the Starkweather Moor expedition, oh, yes. was they, they kind of got it wrong. I think maybe first time by accident, but later on purpose. So it became the Tony Stark and Roger Moore expedition, yes. which, you know, I want to see that. Oh, Bellwether Moor cock or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the original party was made up of four men from the university. Peabody, Lake of the Biology Department, Atwood of the Physics Department, also a meteorologist, and I, representing geology and having nominal command, besides 16 assistants, 7 graduate students from the Miskatonic, and the 9 skilled mechanics. You see, I read that as, besides 16 red shirts, 7 pieces of ablative armour, and 9 people we won't ever mention. Some of those are like backup PCs though, right? Mm. Yeah, and some of them obviously never come into play because he mentions Atwood here. And I, I must admit, I didn't search the text to see whether he's mentioned again. But I don't remember him cropping up again no. in this story. 
It's also interesting that there is such a large cast there of, in some cases, cannon fodder, as you mentioned, because, you know, a few years later, John W. Campbell wrote Who Goes There, also known as The Thing from Another World, which we talked about as the basis for The Thing in an earlier episode. And that has a similarly large cast, I think, for similarly large reasons. And, you know, it's obviously a story inspired very heavily by The Mountains of Madness. And I, I wonder whether Campbell sort of picked up on the idea of having this almost identical number of supporting characters just so that they, they're there to be picked off. On related news, Frozen Hell is now out, the re- recently rediscovered version of Campbell's earlier manuscripts that then got trimmed down to become Who Goes There. Yeah, that's the, the novel-length version, isn't it? Oh, yeah. From, from what I've read, uh, not of the story itself, but of the commentary around it, it mainly adds to the background of the creature, so it's more front-loaded. So okay. it gives you more detail about where it's come from and about it, rather than um, adding to the story of what happens after it's crashed. Financed by the Nathaniel Derby Pickman Foundation, the expedition refitted two wooden whaling vessels and christened them as the Arkham and the Miskatonic. As well as the drilling equipment and disassembled aeroplanes... These were loaded with dogs, sledges, camping equipment, and other vital supplies. Pemmican! Lots of pemmican! (laughs) Can't have enough pemmican. Those are two very familiar names there, Darby and Pikmin. Pikmin, obviously, we remember from Pikmin's model, and Darby from uh, the thing on the doorstep. Putting all those names together like that, I assume this is you know some other offshoots of their families that got together at some stage. But, yeah, it's it's a, a nice, quiet little bit of reincorporation there from Lovecraft. As the newspapers told, we sailed from Boston Harbour on September 2nd, 1930, taking a leisurely course down the coast and through the Panama Canal and stopping at Samoa and Hobart, Tasmania, at which latter place we took on final supplies. Again, if you play the Beyond the Mountains of Madness campaign, a lot of this may sound very familiar. Except not stopping off at Tasmania. Did we, I mean, we stopped somewhere to make pemmican or something? Yeah, that was in Australia. Yeah. But I, I think it was on the Australian mainland rather than Tasmania. It's, it's either Sydney or Melbourne, I can't remember which, but it's one of the major cities. As the ships approach Antarctica, the crew encounter icebergs and a mirage that makes them seem like the battlements of unimaginable cosmic castles. Yeah, we see a lot of this as the story goes on, where Dyer, this man of science, I guess, you know, he does have other interests and has read the Necronomicon, but he'll see things like this, and instead of seeing them in purely scientific terms, his brain will immediately leap to, shall we say, very Lovecraftian conclusions. Well, I think it's nice here that he points out that he sees his first mirage. He's heard Mm. of people seeing such things, but here he actually witnesses one, and that's not really an unscientific thing. Um, and he doesn't actually think, oh, that's actually a castle. He just kind of witnesses no. something strange, which is a nice foreshadowing of what happens later. But it's not just the battlements of castles, it's the battlements of unimaginable cosmic castles. Oh, indeed. The crew catch sight of land on the 26th of October. As they approach their destination of McMurdo Sound at the foot of the volcano Erebus, they spy great barren peaks of mystery looming up constantly against the west. The winds that blow off these peaks carry a strange piping sound with them that sounds wild and half-sentient. Their appearance reminds Dyer of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas Rurik. Now, Rurik is a a curious artist from that period. I, I looked up 
him on Wikipedia, mm. as, as one does. And I'm pretty sure you could pull off an imitation, Scott, if you just <laughs> grew your beard out a little bit and have yeah. that Chinese or Tibetan hat. Who, who would have guessed it? He was a theosophist or into yep. theosophy and traveled around Asia and was interested in Buddhism. And, and, and he did a whole bunch of paintings. I'm not sure how one would describe them. They have a kind of almost a kind of a simplified palette. Mm. The colors are quite unusual in their application. They're kind of quite bold colors. And one of the things it put me in mind of was some of the pictures by Tolkien um, of his paintings of Middle Earth. I thought, well, is this just me? So I went online and looked. And sure enough, there's an article uh, in The Guardian that, that points out the same thing. Huh. Uh, that some of the flowing lines of water and land and the kind of use of greens and blues, they're really similar uh, to talk, some of Tolkien's pictures. And, and some of those pictures by Tolkien are really well accomplished. Yeah, I'd say Rurik's style is also deceptively simple looking as well. I and mean, like you say, I mean, it's bold colours, but it's bold brush strokes. It seems I mean, really quite simple looking paintings, mm. I'd say. And not an overwhelming amount of detail, but what detail there is, is very evocative. Rurik himself was, you know, as you say, a fascinating character. I mean, as well as being a theosophist, I mean, he had, you know, interest in the occult in general, in hypnosis, and in architecture. This makes him sound like a Lovecraftian protagonist, doesn't it? Oh, totally, yeah. Sure, his name wasn't Walter Gilman, secretly. <laughs> Dreams in the Witch House. Yes. No, I mean, Gilman's interest was primarily in I mean, geometry and mathematics. Well, he says he got him as a polymath. Oh, that was interest in math- uh, mathematics, isn't it? No, it's kind no. of a broad coverage of all topics. We might think of somebody like, I don't know, maybe Stephen Fry or somebody like that. You know, whatever topic you engage them on, they seem to know something about it yeah. and be versed in a, a broad range of uh, subjects. So the math bit isn't about maths. And apparently Rurik's paintings were Lovecraft's main inspiration for this story, at least what got him started on writing it. Uh, the year before he started working on this in 1930, he had visited the Rurik Museum in New York, which was newly opened at that time, and was highly impressed by what he saw. And you can certainly see that the paintings that Lovecraft references in this with these boxy structures in Tibet, do look like you know, something completely out of the descriptions in this story. Uh, so obviously that wedged itself in Lovecraft's mind and just keeps coming up. And it keeps coming up so much that I think at some point just about every character in this story at some point references Rurik. He seems to be the most well-known thing in this story outside the Necronomicon. You know, every, everyone at uh, the Miskatonic University seems to be well-versed in the Necronomicon, Rurik and the works of Clark Ashton Smith. Do you think it matters if you don't know who Rurik is? Because I imagine a lot of readers, you know, before we had the internet, you mm. couldn't just go and look easily at Rurik's artwork. So a lot of people would have read this story and they'd be like, I've never heard of this guy. Yeah, I don't think it's a barrier because, I mean, you know, I'm sure you had the same experience as I did, Paul. When I first read this story, there wasn't an internet to consult about it. So I read this and I saw those references and I relied entirely on what Lovecraft told me about them in terms of the way the paintings looked and, uh, you know, who Rurik was. And that was enough to sell it within uh, the context of the story. I, di- I didn't need any more. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Dyer also likens the peaks to the Plateau of Leng, which he read of in the Necronomicon. I was rather sorry later on that I had ever looked into that monstrous book at the college library. What's the deal with the Plateau of Leng being in the Antarctic? Wasn't it, isn't it like Tibet or China or somewhere like that? Yeah, it, it, it moves around. Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> this comes up again and again in the story, these references to Leng. And 
I mean, the way that Dyer describes it or rationalises it is that the legends told of it being in Asia, but this these were you know ancient pre-human legends, and that maybe you know there was continental drift, or maybe they were just plain changed during the the repetitions and translations into human languages i mean one explanation i've always liked now i can't remember whether i picked this up from somewhere or whether i just started using it myself was that you know leng isn't so much a place as a concept that you know just sort of erupts in certain places and that's why you find it in the dreamlands that's why you find it in asia that's why you find it in the antarctic i mean a bit like carcosa in that respect leng is a state of mind (laughs) We're starting to get Christmas adverts now for perfumes and things. Aftershave, Leng. Would that be a good, a good one? Scent of Leng? I mean, it has yes. got... There are some weird... As we're going to find out, smell is quite a big part in this oh, story. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's something that embodies the aromatic odour of the corpse fires of Leng. Yeah, I'd splash that on every morning. You'd have no problem with dogs anymore either. So they'd uh, run a mile no. when they smell that. That would certainly offset the elder thing antiperspirant that I use. Travelling as far south as they can, the expedition reaches the Great Ice Barrier and sails around the base of the volcano. Danforth, one of the graduate students, suggests that the volcano may have provided part of the inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Have either of you read A. Gordon Pym? No, I haven't. Have you, Matt? Because you're quite a Poe enthusiast. Yeah, I just know it's just been a bit too long for me to tackle. Yeah, I, I read it some 40 years ago. So my memories of it are just non-existent. And also, I guess I read it before I read Lovecraft, so the, the whole Tekli Lee thing didn't really leap out at me as, as a Lovecraft reference. We're really helping you listeners here <laughs> with, our, with our total lack of knowledge about this. But references tell us a few things here, right? Yes. Uh, this was Poe's only novel telling a sprawling comic tale of a young man's travels aboard a whaling vessel. Moby Dick, but funny. What, like dick jokes? Maybe. <laughs> well, actually, when when was it written? I wonder if it was oh, before it was, Moby Dick. If uh, it was yeah, Poe. it would have been, yeah. yeah. It was 1830s or so, yeah. I think. Yeah. Lovecraft name-checks Pym and borrows the cry of Tekelili from it. There is little in common between the two stories other than that. And in Poe's stories, the cry is issued by birds and by the native people of Antarctica. You mean penguins? Are there no, native no, people they, of Antarctica? That's what I'm saying. They, 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 no, there are in Poe's story. All right, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the cry of Tekli is issued by these uh, flying white birds, which seem to be either imitating the cries of the people down below or the people are imitating the cries of the bird. I just find it weird that there are people there. Yeah, well, bear in mind this was written in the 1830s and it was written as a sort of fantastical comic novel. So he wasn't trying to produce an accurate representation of what Antarctica was like based on the very scant information people had. So he was making shit up. So it's kind of the other end of the spectrum to Lovecraft, whereas he sat in the the library going over details to the nth degree. Poe just, yeah, we'll make shit up. (laughs) <laughs> and considering they both at times worked in the same library, Poe didn't have any excuse. Well, no, obviously not at the same time. But. Well, I mean, a lot had been found out in Lovecraft's time, though. So yes, Poe didn't. It wasn't that he didn't read the books. The books weren't there, right? So well, I that's mean, no excuse. Okay, yeah, no, fair enough. What was he doing? The crew head ashore, noting that myriads of grotesque penguins who squawked and flapped their fins. What's grotesque about penguins? They're cute little guys. They well, are. 
Oh, yeah, Lovecraft really seems to have a thing about penguins in this. I mean, we'll come to a lot more of that later. But Lovecraft really doesn't like penguins. I don't know if he saw some at a zoo at some stage and they just freaked him out. Maybe he went to the Bronx Zoo while he was in New York and he was just so surrounded by foreign people that he was in such a foul state of mind that this got transferred onto the penguins. Aww. But they're cute. They kind of swim around and then they jump up and slide along on their bellies and waddle. And oh, they're cute little, cute little things. I mean, the only downside I see is the smell. Have you been to the penguin enclosures in zoos? Oh, they yes. smell real bad. That's all right. I've got chickens in the back garden. I know bad smells. <laughs> but, but even that doesn't make them grotesque. No, that is kind of strange. They set up a semi-permanent camp and assemble their shortwave radio transmitter, capable of communicating with the offices of the Arkham Advertiser back in Massachusetts. The expedition's plan is to conduct their entire mission over the course of the summer, but to make camp on the Arkham over winter and send the Miskatonic back for fresh supplies if this overruns. And yeah, apparently it was possible at the time to you know, set up a radio transmitter, shortwave radio transmitter, that could communicate between Antarctica and, say, Massachusetts, which this is something that had actually concerned me a little when we were writing The Two-Headed Serpent, because early on in that, there is a bit where someone sets up a radio transmitter and communicates from South America to North America. And I was thinking at the time, is this realistic? Well, fuck it, it's pulp. Let's not worry about it. <laughs> And, you know, uh, this was a good reminder that, yes, actually, that was actually not completely unrealistic. So not weird science, just regular science. The mission goes smoothly, scaling the volcano and taking bore samples. The environment is cold, yep, freezing cold, but barely worse than a New England winter. Using the newly assembled planes, the expedition sets up a second camp 700 miles south on the ice shelf and surveys the surrounding area. Yeah, I mean, 700 miles. These journeys that they mm. take are vast. I mean, Antarctic, it's a big place. You know, they, they take quite a long time on the Arkham and the Miskatonic ships to get there, but then actually traveling across on the planes, you know, you're going for hours and hours of, of flight time to get there. Um, and we we complained about our flight on the Norwegian Airlines. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it's nothing compared to what these guys went through. Seven hours of <laughs> hell. <laughs> and also that mention of it being barely worse than a New England winter. We probably didn't make clear that they are doing this in the height of summer in the Antarctic, obviously being the Southern Hemisphere. They're setting out in September, October, with the idea of doing most of it around November, December time. So that's going to be when it's at its warmest and when the sun never sets. The fossil samples dire extracts show a great variety of ancient life, notably ferns, seaweeds, trilobites, crinoids, and such mollusks as something I can't L pronounce. Lingulae. Isn't that a kind of pasta? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, when you say that, crinoids, I know, are definitely uh, an adversary from Doctor Who because they're in the Seeds of Doom. Okay, well, we're getting some weird stuff here. <laughs> anyway, lingulae and gastropods. In amongst these, Lake identifies a queer triangular striated marking about a foot in greatest diameter. Yeah, and he finds this in a slab of slate. This isn't something you'd expect to find such a complex fossil in. We'll, we'll come back to more of that later. In early January, key members of the team fly over the South Pole itself. There they see another mirage. 
Distant mountains floated in the sky as enchanted cities, and often the whole white world would dissolve into a gold, silver, and scarlet land of Dunsanian dreams and adventurous expectancy under the magic of the low midnight sun. So... Yeah, as, as well as reading Clark Ashton Smith and and the Necronomicon, apparently, you know, the team are well versed in Lord Dunsany as well, as they should be. The team establish a new camp five hundred miles east, where they believe two continents collided and fused eons ago. There, they excavate new samples. Dyer notes that they were experiencing uncanny good luck with the supplies, avoiding scurvy and weathering the effects of storms. Any Cthulhu investigator should know better than to bait the keeper in such a way. I mean, they've got good supplies of lime juice to ward off the scurvy. And make the pemmican taste like something. Yeah, a bit of lime juice on it. That'll freshen it up, right? (laughs) That'd be good. Cut through the the kind of fattiness. I mean, you do have to consume an awful lot of calories. A book I read many years ago was Ranulph Fine's Expedition Across the Antarctic. They crossed the Antarctic on foot without dogs and all that stuff. And basically, they had to pull sledges. So they had these harnesses on their body and these sledges, which, you know, were vastly heavy and had all their supplies in. Him and this doctor went and the doctor, like, studied how many calories they were consuming. It was vast amounts. And when they got there, he had this sledge and he says it was like pulling a bathtub through sand with someone sat in it. Because it wasn't like it was ice and it was nice and slippery. And he said once he set it up, the first day he set it up, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to move this or not. So until they're actually there and he finds, okay, well, I can. The thing about having dogs to pull you, as some of the earlier expeditions did, you don't keep warm that way. So I wonder how they kept warm. If you're stood on a sled, you wouldn't want to be stood on a sled, right? They must be walking along Mm. behind the dogs or something. I guess so. Because if you were just stood still, even with all those furs on, I mean, I'd freeze. Yeah. You know, I will say I'm not likely to be undertaking any Antarctic expeditions myself. But also eating, you know, as you say, incredibly calorie-dense foods is part of this. I mean, pemmican is, if I remember correctly, largely made up of beef tallow. I mean, it's not quite solid fat, but it's, you know, huge amounts of fat, so mm. very calorific. And, of course, the the other thing famously that Imagineers and I think polar explorers eat a lot of is Kendall mint cake. Which, yeah, I... Lots and lots and lots of sugar. Well, yeah, Kendall Mint Cake is basically just like bars of solid sugar with a bit of mint flavouring. Yeah, when I was a Venture Scout about age 17, we'd, you know, we'd go on little hikes, and one of the things you'd have to have would be Kendall Mint Cake. It was like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to, like, run out of calories to burn. I don't know. It's like, we're only going a few miles. We don't need Kendall Mint Cake. And it was pretty vile anyway. I mean, it's it's not quite like eating sugar lumps because it's a slightly different texture. It's more uh, more deliquescent than that. And minty. Uh, yes, and minty. And you, you can also get chocolate-covered Kendall mint cake, which seems to defeat the point because I imagine the chocolate is less calorie-dense. Oh, it's like the diet version if you yeah. want chocolate on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. For the polar explorer who's trying to shed a few pounds. Yeah. It does remind me a little bit of um, tablet that you can get oh, way north as well. 
A tablet is is like a combination of like you know, the, the, the worst aspects of Kendall mint cake and pemmican, mm-hmm. in that it's you know very dense with both sugar and fat. I've described tablet before as being sort of to fudge what crack is to cocaine. It's basically a type of very friable fudge, very dense, solid, again deliquescent. I think all you have to do is is look at it to contract type two diabetes. So that would explain it. Oh, well. Yeah, it's my fault. <laughs> I was actually more thinking my grandparents, because that's where they introduced me to it. I, I, I thought it was exclusively a Scottish thing. So did, did you get it in the North England as well? Yeah, Manchester. Oh, um, right. But I, when I've been up to Scotland as well, that's more where yeah. I've been able to find it more accessibly. But no, my grandparents could get it in Manchester way, but this is going back a few years now. No, it's one of the, the two sort of foodstuffs of doom I remember from sweet shops in Dundee. There was that and, and coconut ice. Oh, Which is, that's great. You know, and coconut ice is basically like Kendall mint cake with bits of ground-up coconut in it. But it's so good. Let's not even start on white puddings. I finally got to have some of that at Providence. The white small, pudding in Providence? Yeah, it was at, at Murphy's Bar. They had okay. an Irish breakfast where they had the world's smallest piece of black pudding and the world's smallest piece of white pudding that they could get on the plate. About the size of my thumb. Yeah. But yeah, I finally got to have some. How was it? It was all right. It was <laughs> just, all right. It was just a bit small. Okay, achievement unlocked, but it was okay. Lake, obsessed with the triangular fossils that he found earlier, proposes exploring a new region to the west. He believes the sample indicates the presence of an advanced organism when life on Earth should have been unicellular between 500 million and 1,000 million years ago. We get a lot of big numbers in this. Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's sort of a, a mixed a blessing, because I think this, like the Shadow Out of Time, works as cosmic horror because of its notions of deep time, our insignificance in the geological timescale. At the same time, the constant repetition of such big numbers, I mean, particularly in, in all sorts of different contexts here, becomes quite numbing. A thousand million is like a billion, right? Yes. At the time, there was a difference between the American definition of a billion and the British definition of a billion. And, you know, of course, Lovecraft as an Anglophile was probably torn on that front, uh, certainly with the ambiguity. Back in those days, a thousand million would have been an American billion, but a British billion was a million million. Nowadays, we've uh, adopted the American one. Earth is something like five billion years old? Something around that kind of figure, but is that like 5 million million or 5,000 million? 5,000 million, I think. Uh, yeah. So we're talking here about a fifth of the way back of the, the Earth's history. But bear in mind, you know, for a large chunk of that time, it would have been a mass of cooling rock. Uh, when we're talking about you know, these, these earliest times here, Lovecraft does make the point that this was still in the times when you know, that, that was the case, that some of these earliest tracks left by whatever it was are in slate that was present when the Earth was still cooling and before there really should have been any life around. I was about to say, were there dinosaurs then? But now I see the, the, the note that... Life on Earth should have been unicellular, so it's yes. talking like little amoeba-type things. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we're really way back here. Oh, yes. That brings us to an end of Chapter 1 of At the Mountains of Madness. So we're going to pick the story up next time with, surprise, surprise, Chapter 2. Spoilers, Paul, spoilers. I know, right? Mm-hmm. And more stuff happens. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't oversell the stuff happening part. <laughs> All right. It is once again that time when we would like to say thank you to a lot of people. And when I say a lot of people, I mean a lot of people. The huge quantity here is largely because we recorded a whole backlog of episodes before we headed off to Necronomicon. So it's, it's about two months since we last recorded. So we would like to say thank you, obviously, to everyone who listens, to everyone who has backed us via Patreon. And we have a few new people to thank by name. And top of the list, at the $1 level, we have a thanks going out to the wonderfully named Jack Gravy. Hey, that, that's all one word, so it is indeed. Thank you, Jack Gravy. Yes, thank you, Jack Gravy. And, and now I'm hungry. And we would like to thank, I really hope we're going to get your name right here, but thank you to Avika Fanovich. Thank you very much, Avica. Thank you very much, Avica. And next, our thanks go out to Cobalt Taproot. Thank you very much, Cobalt. Thank you, Cobalt. And thanks also to James Harrison. Hey, thank you, James. Yeah, thank you very much, James. We want to say thank you very much to Max Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, if you, <laughs> if you go with the Mel Brooks version. Ah, I was going to say that. I think we all were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Max. Yes, thanks, Max. I like to think Max in that name is short for Maximum. Maximum Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, yes. Next, our thanks go out to Michael F. So, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Michael. And thanks to Asa Roast. Well, thank you very much, Asa. Hey, thank you, Asa. And another name I really hope is a real one, but I, this, this time I, I really can't make myself believe it however much I want. But our thanks anyway go out to the wonderfully named Candied Corpse. Thank you very much, Candid. Thank you, Candid. Next, our thanks go out to Trebuchet Magazine. Well, thank you very much, Trebuchet Magazine. Yes, thank you very much, Trebuchet Magazine. And we did actually receive a copy of Trebuchet Magazine through the post. And we do actually have more to say about Trebuchet Magazine, but we're obviously a bit pressed for time at the moment because we have so many people to thank. But we will tell you a bit more about what exactly Trebuchet Magazine is in a later episode. And thank you very much to Anubis Sama. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Hey, thank you very much, Anubis. And thank you very much to Andrew Remus. Hey, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, thanks also go out to Randy Justice. So thank you very much, Randy. Thank you, Randy. Yes, thank you, Randy. And thank you very much to Jay Hollyfield. Thank you very much, Jay. Hey, thank you, Jay. And thank you to Rafi Rodriguez. Hey, thank you very much, Rafi. Thank you, Rafi. And thank you to Thomas DePaolo. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. Yes, thank you very much, Thomas. And now we move up to the $3 level... Where first of all we say cheers and thanks to Josh King. So, cheers, Josh. Cheers, Josh. Cheers and thank you, Josh. And a cheers and thanks go out to Andrew Rodwell. Well, cheers and thank you. Hey, cheers, Andrew. Thank you and cheers as well to Liam Turner. Hey, cheers, Liam. Cheers, Liam. Well, now we come to the true madness, and it's not about mountains. It's about what we do with $5 backers, which is sing our praises to them. And the first $5 backer today, I think, is an old friend of yours, Scott, yes. David Brewer. David Brewer, who I used to play Call of Cthulhu with in New York so many years ago. So, so many years ago. Now, in a short correspondence with him, 
he indicated you might have played your first Call of Cthulhu game with him. I think the first time I ran Call of Cthulhu was, yes, with that group in New York. So it was him, Sol Mincer. There was a guy who came along just for one session. And I think because I killed his investigator so horribly because he did something so stupid, he never came back and just ghosted me after that. Huh. Uh, I, I seem to remember his name was Scott Gordon, which I remember solely because, you know, my middle name is Gordon. I, anyway. Yeah, um, all right. He was an alternate you from the future that went back yeah, clearly. to play in that first game, see what it was like. And I'm trying to remember who the fourth person in the group was, because I'm sure there were four. But yeah, I can't remember who that was. But anyway, yes, Dave was certainly a member of that original group. He's got a lot to answer for, clearly. <laughs> he only took a big sand hit. He's going to take another one in a minute. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I seem to remember, actually, the first scenario I ran for them all those years ago was the Crystal of Chaos from uh, Different Worlds magazine, later reprinted in the House of Rillier uh, in an expanded version. So, yeah, everyone else who started out with the haunting, yeah, nah, no, nah, Crystal of Chaos. Okay, well, thank you, David, and hope you enjoy this. <laughs> David Brewer, David Brewer, David And thanks also to someone else we know, though someone we've met much more recently, and that is Dylan Massan, who has been uh, very welcoming to us each time we've gone out to Necronomicon, and has always made a point of, of, you know, just helping us out in small ways. So thank you very much, Dylan. Indeed, thank you very much, Dylan. Thank you, Dylan. Enjoy. Dylan Massan. Dylan Massan. On social media, we have a great new review on Apple Podcasts from J.R. Wilkinson in Australia, who says, Great podcast for a great game. Paul, Matt and Scott are so knowledgeable about Call of Cthulhu in particular and RPGs in general that this podcast is a delight to listen to. The recent episodes interviewing Mike and Lynn from Chaosium were brilliant, but I want to reserve a special mention for the episode about player engagement. As a keeper myself, I thought this discussion was a joy to listen to and provided me with so many tips and advice. Can't wait for the next episodes to be released. Oh, thank you very much, JR. We, we really appreciate that. Okay. And we had some lovely feedback about our recent episode on our top three RPG mechanics. Tom Bagatelle on Discord says... Matt's explanation of how the Huxter's ability worked was different to my memories of the early 90s or early 2000s when I last played Deadlands. As I recall, when a Huxter manipulated reality, they had to play a hand of poker with their devil, and the GM 
play it as the devil. We probably got it wrong or decided to okay it that way. Or I'm misremembering. I do recall that we started using poker dice for it though, and nasty things happened if the devil won. It was a fun little subsystem. And we called them mountebanks, or mount sharps, or, or something. Hucksters sold fake medicines. And the idea of playing the devil at cards is just so mythic. Do you recognise any of those mechanics as variants, or was Tom's no, group just getting it completely wrong? No, I think I know what he's probably thinking about. It is purely that you draw a number of cards from the deck, because it is based on your statistical likelihood of pulling certain combinations. You're not pulling them in against anyone else. But if you do screw up monumentally in the manner two takes over you, you could represent that as the devil in inverted commas, that they can possess you. So that's maybe what you're thinking of, is that okay. potentially you could get be possessed by a devil. But it wasn't that you were supposedly playing cards against the devil whenever you did that. No, it's you're playing the odds to try and get as more cards to draw off the deck to make the best combination of poker, um, poker hands as possible. You see, I think I prefer Tom's version. Yeah, there. I do. <laughs> yeah, I think dicing with the devil, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a ring to it, doesn't it? To achieve magic, you have to dice with the devil. That's well, pretty cool. You do it in Talisman when you get into the, in, um, the inner board. Mm. Um, that you end up rolling against uh, like playing dice with the devil, which is a nice atmospheric touch. And yeah, I think it'd actually work probably better if you had a small little poker game. Yeah. And we also got a mention on the What Would the Smart Party Do podcast. Gaz referenced your discussion of Deadlands. Because oh. uh, they were talking about using Savage Worlds for Deadlands. Yeah, that's the more revised uh, Deadlands Reloaded. Yeah, yeah. He said your exposition on how the rules worked convinced him that Savage Lands was a better version. <laughs> it's simpler, and also Huxters aren't as likely to blow themselves or anyone else around them up. Right, I mean, at least that's what I remember he said. I might be misrepresenting him, but I think that was the, the, the gist of it. I've never been entirely sold on Savage Worlds. I've played it a few times, and, and it's inoffensive, I'd say, apart from the shaking mechanic, which mm -hmm. I, I hate with a burning passion. You're not the only one. But... It's never a game I felt excited to play either. You know, there are certain games when I sit down at the gaming table, I think, oh, good, I'm going to play this game. And Savage Worlds, I don't know, there's just something about it. It feels so bland in the mechanics that I just feel, okay, it's Savage Worlds. I mean, the Smart Party did several episodes about it recently, and I've bought the most recent edition of the rulebook to, to have a read-through, because I'm very interested to read it, because Gaz in particular, and Baz as well, they're, they're big fans of it, so yeah. I'm interested to see you know how it works. And with regard to the Shaken mechanic, I think they kind of implied that that had been revised somewhat. Yes. Okay, right. Yeah, the other, I don't think the most recent version was out yet, because I still haven't received mine from the Kickstarter yet. It's a PDF. Ah, yeah, you'd, you'd have that. Yeah, then. I'm a cheapskate. I just no. bought the PDF. <laughs> I'm waiting for my um, faux leather-bound copy. Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> and then Shiba Akinari on Reddit said, The Huxter's Hand of Cards from Deadlands and Legends of the Five Rings Roll and Keep systems are two of my favourite mechanics. I know Matt called out Roll and Keep from 7C, but L5R had it two years earlier. Yeah, I've got L5R, most of 1st edition and most most of 2nd edition, a little bit of 3rd uh, and 4th. But I prefer 7C, so... <laughs> but otherwise, you've got great taste. <laughs> uh, I've only gone through character creation in L5R. The game that I had planned with it never actually came together. So, Fun Funnily enough, exactly the same reason. I brought a shitload of games for L5R, and then the GM said, no, nah, actually, I've not got the time to run it. And thought, you... <laughs> just invested a shitload of money and a whole shelf on this stuff. Imagine buying role-playing games and then never playing them. Who would do that? Yeah, I know. God, crazy idea. They'll never catch on. Well then, 
And to wrap things up, what are our thoughts on the opening of uh, The Mountains of Madness? I enjoy it, but it is kind of like a lot of information to take on, a lot of factual information and scientific references and so on. But as I've said, I think that sets up a good footing for the rest of the story. Lovecraft has talked about how setting weird stories in what is seems like the real world is a good start. And he really goes to town on that in this. Yeah, I, I agree to some extent. I think he sets some very good foundations here. Where I struggle with the story, and you know, we'll see much more of this, this as we go on, is that it's not just front-loaded in this. And it does seem like you know, the, the pattern of this is eat your vegetables and then you'll get a bit of pudding uh, yeah and uh, oh, but repeated over and over again that you get you know all this exposition all this information dump all this quite often dry technical detail and then you know something interesting will happen or you'll get a bit of weirdness thrown in and then we're back to you know this time instead of you know five pages on geology we're getting five pages on biology or five pages on paleontology but whilst you're eating those dry vegetables Scott he keeps holding up the recipe book from which the dessert is made and like opening the fridge and letting you get a, a little glimpse of it because he's saying you know he keeps telling us all this stuff is just kind of real but he's writing it as a, a record looking back at it and he knows what's coming at the end of the story and he's warning us about this stuff yeah but i don't know I, he he's really i think largely being a literary cock tease there it's not that there's no payoff, but I think the ratio of payoff to slog in this is off. Mm. I think he does this much better in other stories. I don't think this is quite as bad as, say, uh, The Shadow Out of Time, mm. which I, I say is an even more egregious example of this. But you get other stories like, you know, the, say, The Shadow of Rinsmith, which he wrote directly after this, which does have bits of exposition in history and so on, but they're delivered in character. You know, they're, they're done through an active process of talking to people in investigation and so on. And it's not just, here's, you know, five pages on the geology or, or the you know, the plant life of the, the marshland surrounding Innsmouth, you know, which you clearly need to know before you actually get to town. What do you make of it, Matt? It does remind me a little bit of an inflated version of the shunned house. Here's a whole load, in this case, geology rather than uh, genealogy. And here, all this massive background information. There's me. I, I kind of almost picture myself as the child on the back seat going, are we at the elbow yet? Or in this case, are we at the city yet? Are we neither there yet? Are we neither there yet? Fuck it, skip 20 pages. Are we neither there yet? I, I really don't like the opening, probably half of this story. Yeah, I mean, it really does take half the story before you get to... Any Anything of, fun. Yeah, any of what I'd call the good bits. Yeah. And boy, when it gets good, it's good, but you have to get there. Yeah, I mean, we should say, we may be debating whether the first chapter is good, but there is some marvellous stuff coming. Yeah. All right, so join us next time when we carry on our expedition into those mountains of madness. But until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com mm-hmm.